The scripture reading today is taken from 1 Corinthians 12.31 to 13.7. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Again, welcome here. Uh, if I haven't had the chance to, to meet you yet, especially a warm welcome to you. My name is Brant. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ City Church, and it's my joy to bring you uh, a sermon from this text. Um, but before we begin, it would be appropriate for us if we bowed our heads together and asked for the Lord's help. So let's do that now. Yeah, God, we come before you and we are grateful for the revelation of your word. God, we recognize how lost we would be if we didn't have your revelation to us, if we didn't have your love poured out to us in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray for everyone here, uh, regardless of who they are or what they come in with this morning, that they would see something of your glory in this chapter about your love. Lord, that we would have our eyes lifted to see what you've done for us in Jesus Christ, that we put our faith in him, that we be filled with your Holy Spirit and with your love to love one another. In Jesus Christ we ask. Amen. So this past week, uh, you may have noticed fall arrived. Drought has suddenly ended. Drought seems like a distant memory. And with the drought ending, uh, the weather has changed. And in fact, we even had a power outage in my neighborhood in Kitsilano. I don't know if you guys were affected by that or not. Uh, But during that power power outage, lights, I'm told, were gone. Uh, Washing machines stopped. Uh, Espresso machines stopped working in local coffee shops. I know a few people had to cancel their meetings that they were having in those coffee shops to meet elsewhere. And the stores and the the shops on our street closed down. It's an interesting thing. We don't have power outages very often in our neighborhood in Kitsilano, but every power outage is a reminder, I think, of how dependent we've grown on this mysterious force that flows through the wires and through the walls of our buildings, bringing life to everything that we do. In fact, it's the reality that if we didn't have that power flowing through our walls, that our life would basically be useless. (laughs) There's not much that we can do without power. There's an analogy here with what was going on in the church in Corinth because the Corinthian church was full of problems that we've been learning in this text. 
It was full of divisions and full of immorality, full of competition, full of problems where those that had stuff and resources in life overlooked the needs of those who did not have those things, uh, full of this selfishness, this arrogance and pride that tried to step on one another and get ahead of the other person. But these problems had one thing in common because they were all symptoms of a power outage in the church. And they, they shut off the power that brings life to this world because they stopped loving one another as God and Jesus Christ had loved them. So this morning we're looking at 1 Corinthians 13, which is this famous love chapter in scripture. You've all probably heard it before or heard about it before. And we often think of it as a standalone passage, it's how we, we hear of it. But that's not the case because chapter 13 is no random digression about love in this letter to the Corinthians. In fact, chapter 13 is the very heart and soul of this section about spiritual gifts. It's the heart and soul of this section because with love, the smallest gift is powerfully effective. But without love, even the greatest gift is useless. This is going to be our outline this morning. We're going to look at how without love, it's nothing. We are nothing. All of our labors come to nothing. But how with love, with this biblical love, we have everything. Even the smallest act and the smallest gift can be useful for God and his kingdom. So I want you to look at our first point together with me, without love, nothing, and the words that Paul wrote in chapter 12, verse 31. Paul wrote there, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. See, verse 31 transitions from this topic about spiritual gifts that we've been in to the more fundamental issue that Paul wants the Corinthians to realize, the issue of love, the power source for the church. And the problem, that, as we've learned in chapter 12, is that the Corinthians used the gifts they've received as an opportunity to boast over against one another and to create division in the church. And these Corinthians, they, they thought about the gifts that they'd received, not so much as gifts that God has given me to be useful for the good of others, but as gifts that God has given me for me. These are, are my gifts, gifts to make me look good, gifts that exalt me in various ways in the church. And Paul's been correcting them. The gifts aren't for me, aren't just for you merely, but given by God to you to bless all of them. And it's in this context that Paul writes in verse 31, earnestly desire the higher gifts. Higher gifts in what respect? Higher gifts in terms of gifts that are most useful to the blessing and building up of others. But more important, even than this fundamental truth about how our gifts are received by us and given by God for the good of others, is the heart of love that ought to empower every act of our Christian lives. So Paul transitions and he writes these words, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Look at verses one to three and see what he says there. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clinging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. 
If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So what's the most excellent way that Paul's talking about? It's the way of love. And love is so important to the point that the absence of love leads to the absence of growth or of usefulness of any kind in our lives as Christians. Shockingly, Paul could even say, you could be the most gifted prophet, the most gifted teacher, the most gifted person in the church. You could work the greatest miracles for God. You could walk around literally healing people and displaying these powerful acts of God in miracles. You could sacrifice everything that you had and even be killed, giving your body to the flames, he says, and still ultimately live a wasted and a meaningless and a fruitless life. That's shocking. Isn't that striking? And yet if we think about it, I think we, we can see in our own lives, in our own observation of, of maybe things that we've seen in the church, that it's true. I want you to think for a second of maybe some of the, the, the scandals that you've, you've read about or, or heard about churches in the news. Unbelievably gifted leaders and growing churches. And how often have we seen those leaders and those churches come to disaster because the great giftedness of that leader isn't matched with the, the great growth of the love of Christ for others in their lives. Or you can think of very average churches, smaller churches, maybe of whom ours is one, just a, a church you know, of whom there are many all over the world. And how often have you seen these churches fall apart suddenly when trials come? As they tear themselves apart because of differences of opinions on non-essential issues or long-held bitternesses perhaps? or unreconciled relationships. See, without love, Paul writes soberingly, their gifts are nothing. They are nothing. And they have gained nothing. You know, Chris said, the, the Corinthians, they pursued a lot of wonderful things, but pursued them without love. And because of that, it was destroying them. And this passage comes to them as this deep warning and encouragement to pursue love. And I'm wondering this morning, what about us? Are there things that, that you have been pursuing, that, that I've been pursuing, that we have collectively been pursuing that are good things? But have we been pursuing those things perhaps in the absence of love? Maybe we've been pursuing recognition of various kinds within this church for the gifts that we have. Maybe we've been pursuing Knowledge, trying to grow in, in understanding of the scriptures. Maybe we've been pursuing personal preferences. We want things to be just so at Christ City Church in Kitsilano in the ways that satisfy me. Maybe we've been pursuing our own comfort here, things that make me fit in and feel accepted and feel good in lives with others. But is it possible that we've been pursuing these things apart from love? See, pursuing any of these things without love means that in our lives we will come to nothing, we will gain nothing, and all of your service, all of your sacrifice, even here in this church, will ultimately be meaningless. And yet on the other hand, with love, even the smallest gift, even the simplest 
act, even the most, most smallest and insignificant seemingly part of the body of Christ will be useful to build God's kingdom in ways that will last for all of eternity. Why don't you look at our next point, with love, everything. And of course, as we look at love and look at this passage, we know that definitions are very important. And we ask the question, even in our own culture, what is love? Right? And you just say those words and you can think of song lyrics that go through your head. So there's a wall on Granville Island that is very much in keeping with this. And the, the wall has the words, love is dot, dot, dot. And there's all the space beneath that wall to fill in with chalk the definitions of love that people randomly in the, in the city might have and can fill out that wall. And some common Vancouver answers for love are these. Love is acceptance. Love is emotion or passion. Love is Commitment, but with certain limitations, of course, whether spoken or unspoken. And just like Paul can't walk into Christ City Church, into a room filled with us this morning, and just say the word love and automatically know that he's talking about the same thing that we're thinking of, he couldn't do that with the Corinthians either. Because in that church and in that city, they would have primarily thought about love as a emotional or an ecstatic or some kind of a sexual experience. And Paul had to define for them what biblical love is. And in verses four to seven, Paul gives God's own revelation of what love is. And again, we're back at this beautiful passage that we're all familiar with. And maybe you think this morning that as we read this passage, you're like, you know, yeah, I, I see that it's beautiful, Brand, but it's kind of unremarkable to me because I already believe this. You've seen it and it's become so familiar to you. You've watched The Office. You saw that it was recited at Pam and, uh, and Jim's wedding even, right? You know, this is, this is ubiquitous in our culture. It's just everywhere. So what's so remarkable about this love after all, Brand? Well, if that's you, I can't stress enough how unique the Bible's description of love is in the history of the world. So this is a unique thing in the history of the world. And if you think these words are unremarkable, it's only because of the triumph of the love of Christ. It's only because of the triumph of the love of Christ so filling us and this world that we've actually become very familiar with the Bible's definition of love in our lives. And what's foreign to us naturally has become admirable, even if we don't put it into practice. See, left to ourselves, human beings would not define love in this way. And with that said, we need to look and hear these words afresh, looking carefully at verses 4 to 7. Look at the glorious and historically unique biblical definition of love. Paul writes, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And the first thing we need to see in this passage and know about it is that when it's translated into English, our English versions tend to uh, equate love with nouns. 
But we need to realize that actually in Greek, as this chapter was written, that these words aren't nouns at all or adjectives. They are verbs. See, love acts. Love is a verb according to scripture. And that's really significant because if today we're accustomed to thinking about love as an emotion, we need to realize that's not how the Bible thinks about it. We think about love as an emotion that maybe will lead to certain actions in our lives today, right? And then when the emotion of love is dried up, we then stop acting in love towards one another. And this is why we can fall in and out of love. It's why relationships today are seldom lifelong commitments because they're based on the emotion that leads to an action. When the emotion is gone, then the love is gone. But Christian love is not a subjective and changeable emotion. Christian love is fundamentally a decision of the will to act for the good and the benefit of others, regardless of how you are feeling. Paul describes this love in action in this passage. He describes it in 14 ways, and we're going to look at them right now. First, Paul writes about the action of love that it is patient. Love waits patiently. Now, as somebody who struggles to wait for people, uh, basically in every area of my life, whether I'm running or I'm skiing uh, or I'm just living my daily life with my kids and trying to get from point A to point B, this is difficult for me. And I know for, for you as a Christian, it's probably difficult as well in your Christian life and your Christian walk with God. I know that there's moments in your life when you find it hard to wait for others. Isn't that true? I know that there are moments when you become impatient with the lack of growth in somebody else. I know that there's times when you and I become impatient with the idiosyncrasies and just the differences of people from us. Aren't there times when, when we walk through our lives and we have this breakthrough moment with Jesus, right? And, and that sin's finally put to death or we finally learned that lesson. And then what do we do? We look around at everyone else and we get frustrated that they've not grown like I have, right? And we forget that it took me a long decade or two to learn this particular lesson. And I'm so frustrated that they aren't learning that lesson right this moment. You know, I'll give them another day or two and then I'm through with them. We grow impatient with one another. Or in our lives together, isn't it true that we can grow impatient with just loving one another in the simple ways that we need to in a church? Where people are different from you here. And there'll be moments when you have to slow down your life in order to merge it into someone else's life, to love them, to care for them, to relate to them. And it's hard. And we can grow impatient. Or maybe there's times in your life when you just simply forget how God has been so patient with you. How he's loved you so faithfully. How he hasn't ever left you or forsaken you no matter how difficult you've been toward him how he's always there and how he carefully uses the right opportunities at exactly the right moment to speak that truth to your heart that that finally cuts through and brings change. See, love waits patiently for others. Do you wait patiently for others? And the second thing that Paul tells us about love is that it is kind or as a verb that love shows kindness. You see, to show kindness is to act generously or magnanimously towards someone else. It's to be intentional with your time and with your energy and to consider how you can bless another person. 
It's very focused on actions and doing and working out blessing in someone someone else's life. Now, I have to say, here at Christ City Church, I've personally been so blessed by your kindness toward me. There's been innumerable times when I've received various letters of encouragement or different gifts or childcare or meals uh, that actually have provoked me and have challenged me because of the intentionality that is at work here in this church. So praise God for it. Praise God for it. But let me encourage you, continue to think about that. Continue to think about the concrete actions of kindness that you might be able to work in the life of someone else. See, love is not just sentiments or good feelings. Kindness is not just feeling good thoughts towards someone else. It's concrete actions of generosity and blessing. Third, love does not envy. Christ City, God has loved each of us deeply. And yet God has not given each of us the same gifts or the same circumstances in life. But love does not envy. See, love sees God's gifts in the lives of others and is enabled to rejoice with them in what God has given to that person. And love enables you to to rejoice in that way without enviously desiring it for yourself. On the other hand, fourth, Paul says love does not boast, right? So when you receive blessings and you're the recipient of some wonderful good from the Lord, love doesn't boast about it. Love doesn't take what you've received and then rub salt in the wounds of the person who has not. In fact, love humbly cares for those who haven't been given what you've been given, So Christ City, I'm wondering if even in these words, you can taste some of the freedom and the goodness of Christian love. There's a freedom here in love, a freedom to receive without the need to boast about it and a freedom to actually and genuinely celebrate the good things that you see in someone's life, even if you desire those for yourself. Fifth, love is not arrogant. The verb here for arrogant is inflated. It's to be puffed up. And arrogance is really nothing more than an inflated sense of our own self-importance. And arrogant people are repulsive because they walk around thinking that they are far more important than they actually are. But love recognizes that we are only, all of us and each of us, we are only one very small part of Christ's body, the church. That we are dependent on one another. And that God has gifted each of us for the good of the other as he has wisely determined. Love is not self-importance in an inflated way. It's a humble willingness to take our place in our lives and to serve others as God has given us opportunity. Six, love is not rude. See, Paul isn't talking about what we refer to sometimes in our own household as bathroom words. Uh, we've got to send our kids off often uh, when, when the rudeness uh, creeps out of the bathroom and into our dinner table. Um, I have six-year-olds and under, so that makes sense, I guess, if you can think about it. But Paul's not talking about that. He's not talking about our rudeness of, of things that are just the, you know, the wrong childlike word in, in the wrong setting. He's talking about a rudeness that has to do with selfishness. He's talking about a rudeness that takes place in the life of a rude person who doesn't care about how their actions might offend someone else. 
See, a rude person is someone who forces their idiosyncrasies thoughtlessly on someone else. In the Corinthian letter, what's going to happen as we get to chapter 14 is we'll see how some Corinthians thoughtlessly and rudely insisted on speaking in tongues, no matter how other people were feeling about it, whether they are uncomfortable or offended or if it was repulsive in turning others the way who might come to faith in Christ Jesus. And I think it's important to recognize that in this church here at Christ City in Kitsilano, this church which is growing in diversity all the time, we must be very careful not to be selfishly rude towards one another. Because there are many different preferences, many different cultures that are here in our church, and we need to be appropriately aware of those things so as not to cause one another to stumble and not to needlessly offend one another. Seventh, love does not insist on its own way. Or literally, love does not seek the self. That stings. Love does not seek itself. I think this verse hits us very hard. And it hits us hard because in our own culture, from the moment that we're born, we're taught that to be happy, we must pursue ourselves. We must follow our heart. We must chase down the things that will make us happy and satisfy us as we follow what we want for ourselves. You can see this, of course, in the phrases like follow your heart, but you can also see it in the common wisdom of our culture, which when there's conflict or when there's difficulty in someone's life, our wisdom from our culture would say, well, what would make you happy? That's how you're going to have to navigate this situation. What will lead to your happiness? What will make you happy? Or you can think of the selfishness of the phenomenon of quiet quitting. Right? How we need to seek my own interest regardless of the interests of my employer because it's what I deserve and it's totally fine. And that's the selfishness at work in the workplace. And by the way, that's just theft. But Paul says love doesn't seek the self. Paul says love looks first to the interests and the blessing of others. So Christ said, yeah, I'm wondering this morning, Is your life primarily concerned with seeking yourself? Is your life focused on how you can satisfy yourself in a variety of ways? Or is your life others-oriented to bless them, to love them? See, a life without love is nothing, Paul says. But he also says that even a rather unremarkable life A life that is unremarkable but filled with selfless love will be constructive and eternally valuable. And counterintuitively, it's very important that we realize that it's a selfless life of love that actually does lead to a life of happiness, even though we don't think that way in our own culture. Eighth, Paul writes, love is not irritable. You see, at Corinth, one group of people was there and they're, they're selfishly boasting about their gifts and their wealth. And, and these selfish people offended those who did not have those things, right? And the group of the have-nots, so to speak, they must have been resentful and maybe even grown in anger and bitterness towards the group that had and that boasted about what they had. And Paul writes even to them and he tells them that love is not irritable. 
Does love fights feelings of anger when love has been hurt and strives to bless and do good even to the person who has hurt you? After all, that sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Jesus, who in Matthew 6, to 45 said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. This leads us to the ninth description of love, which is this, love is not resentful. Now, this isn't a good translation. I, I don't usually say this sort of thing from the pulpit, but it's not, it's not a great translation. It just isn't. The NIV, I think, is much better. And the NIV translates this phrase, love keeps no record of wrongs. You know, the word in Greek is an accounting word. It's about reckoning up or counting up something. And, and love does not keep a record, Paul says, of wrongs. So let me ask you, what about you? Do you keep a Rolodex or a ledger of all the offenses that that person has committed against you? When you're offended by someone, do you usually or very often, do you recount all that they've done before to hurt you and bring it to mind and just sit there and stew on the bitterness Are there people in your life who you can't look at without thinking about all the wrongs they've done to you? Christy, love keeps no record of wrongs. And if you're holding a record of wrongs against someone, I think what that means is that you've not forgiven them. And you do not love them. And Jesus has the most severe warnings for us, maybe in scripture, when we refuse to forgive another person. He says in Matthew 6, 15 as an example, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Now, I realize this is touching on on many painful and difficult spots for a lot of people. Uh, And I want to just affirm to you that we love you, we see you, we care about you. And, And if there are those here in this room right now who are living in a state of unreconciled relationship with someone else, we want to help you. We'd love to walk with you through what it would mean to forgive that person and be reconciled to that person. So if you need help, please reach out to me. Reach out to our other elders, Jonathan or Doug, or someone else who's a faithful and a mature Christian here in the congregation because we want to grow together in forgiveness and to be reconciled to one another. Tenth, Paul says, Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. All right, isn't it true that when we're in conflict with someone that it's just delicious to stew on the bad things that happen to that person, right? You start to, to look forward to uh, all of the things that might befall that person and it becomes this, this um, fantasy in your mind that makes you feel good, right? All right, finally, they're getting the wrong that's coming to them and that they deserve. We want them to suffer. But Christ City, Paul writes, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Instead, love, Paul says, rejoices with the truth, with God's truth, with the truth that's consistent with integrity and righteousness and wholeness to the blessing of someone else. And that means that love does not fudge the details about someone else's life in order to hurt them. 
in order to make yourself look good. And on the other hand, where someone truly is struggling in their sin, love speaks the truth to help that person who is doing poorly. Love wants to lift that person up however they might be able to, not tear them down. And also where there is good that's honestly happening in someone else's life, love is willing to acknowledge it, to honestly say, that's good and praise God. See, love celebrates all that is true and good. Now, lastly, Paul rounds out his description of love with this incredible list of four things that belong together. He writes, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And it's possible, I think, to read these biblical words and to feel like love is just this limp-wristed thing. Love is a doormat. Right? Love just takes it on the chin and falls down before the sinfulness of others' lives over and over again. And I don't want anything to do with that love. But that's not why Paul writes this. See, Paul's point is exactly the opposite. Because Paul sees that biblical love is an irresistible force of conquering good in this world. A conquering love, Paul understands, that bears all things. A love that is full of hopeful possibilities for redemption and transformation. I want to ask you this morning, how hopeful would it be for you to be loved by a love that bears all things? How much of a blessing would it be for you to be loved by others in a way that you knew they would never stop supporting you, that they would never stop caring for you, even when your need far outlasted your desire for that need to still be present in your life, that they were still willing to support and love and care for you. See, a love that bears all things in this way is a powerful force for good and for transformation. But there's more because Paul says this conquering love believes all things. In particular, I think he's talking about how it is willing to believe the best about someone else. So think about it this way. If, if there are 10 different ways to interpret an action from someone towards you, and only one of those ways could possibly be churned for the good, love chooses to believe that way. Love chooses to believe that way. In Christ City, how hopeful would it be for you to be loved like that? See, it's precisely this hopefulness and generosity that creates the possibility of trust and of real relationship and redemption and transformation in this world. Just think about it. If everybody here in this room believed the worst about you, what would that do for your relationships here? You'd be in this endless cycle of self-fulfilling prophecy, right? They believe the worst. You feel weird. You're not really being cared for. Then you act the worst. And then the cycle goes round and around and around. Right? But on the other hand, what if they were willing to believe the best about you? Wouldn't even the, the, the context and the environment of that hopefulness create the possibility and the space that you need for healing in your relationship? Wouldn't it start to open up the possibility of redemption and transformation? See, love bears all, believes all. Paul says this love also hopes all things. Or in other words, it never loses hope. Even when the other person in your life has 
far long ago lost any hope in their own redemption, love never loses hope in the power of God through Jesus Christ and by his spirit to change someone, to save them, to make them new in the power of the gospel. And this love then keeps on reaching out and breaking down every barrier and obstacle through its constancy of love for that person, hoping all things. And finally, this conquering love, Paul says, endures all things. Christ said, this love is a strong love. This love takes offenses on the jaw, but is never broken. This love and the power of the resurrected Christ loves the broken sinner, is strong enough to be hated, to be spat on, to be rebuked, to be offended, to be struck down, but is never destroyed. See, this love looks weak like Jesus looked weak on the cross. But like Jesus in his resurrection, this love overcomes evil with good. And this is biblical love. It's hopeful. It conquers all. It's even praised by everybody around you in Vancouver as a good. In fact, I think we could say more about that. I think it's, it's praised and admired to the point that our culture has been affected by it. And they would say, you ought to live in this way. You ought to be a selfless, loving person. Vancouver would agree with that. They'd say, you want to be, or you ought to be someone who loves and sacrifices for those who are poor, who loves and sacrifices your wealth and your prosperity and comfort for the sake of the environment and this world in which we live. You ought to even love and sacrifice for the marginalized. And yet our culture has a split personality, doesn't it? Because in as much as they uphold the virtue of love, at the same time, our culture tells us to live for ourselves, to pursue our careers and spend our money and time on what satisfies us and makes us happy. I was thinking about an illustration for this, and this is, this is all I could come up with. I think it's kind of like our culture would see the good in each one of us being able to, to squat 400 pounds, right? Like that's a good, that's awesome. But rather than putting us through a training program so that we could grow to be able to carry that weight on our shoulders, our culture says, you know what? You should do that. By the way, here's a TV, endless Netflix, and a lot of junk food. Just make yourself comfortable. See, our culture is powerless to form us in the virtue of love that's needed. Just think about the last week. How much advertising, news, or social media did you see that encouraged you to live for the good of others sacrificially? And how much was spent encouraging to live for your own comfort, for your own fun and entertainment and personal pleasure? The problem is that as much as our culture and even we appreciate historic Christian love, it's powerless to train us for the love of the Bible. And that leads us to a problem. Because if this is the world in which we live, then, then what hope do we have to actually grow, to do more than, than nod our heads amen at a passage like this? To actually begin to live it and put it into practice. How do we avoid being nothing and gaining nothing in our lives? Well, there is a way. There is good news this morning, and it's this. It's by feasting our souls on a far greater beauty than our selfish pursuits. See, love is 
beautiful. It's breathtaking. You think about the, the moments in cinema or the moments in, in your life and time when you think back to moments of love that bring tears to your eyes. They're so powerful. See, every act of true love is beautiful because it reflects God who is love. It all comes from him. It reflects him who, who is love and who's given us this world and all that we have as a gift to us in his love and generosity. This love is all about the beauty of God. And the ancient Jewish King David, he recognized his need in his life to be full of a greater beauty, to see God's love. And he prays in Psalm 27 and cries out, one thing have I asked and that will I seek after, that I may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, that I may contemplate him in his temple. See, David sees his need and he longs that something would change him, that he would just gaze on God, that he'd see the beauty and the glory of the love of God and be transformed by it. See, every one of us who desires to be loved and to love others, according to this passage, ultimately we're desiring the same thing. Our hearts are restless within us, longing to be filled up with a greater love and a greater beauty, one that can only come from knowing God. And there's really good news for us today because the utterly beautiful God of love, he isn't hiding in a temple somewhere. See, he has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And God the Son has revealed the fullness of what love is when he became a human being, when he was born in poverty and died on the cross for our sins. So this is love that God most high would give his life for you who are selfish, for you who are nothing and who gain nothing in your selfishness, so that you could be forgiven and made whole by receiving his love. In Christ said, this God didn't love us once through Jesus and then leave us. After Jesus' resurrection, this God continued to pour out his love into our hearts so we would be enabled and empowered to love one another as he's loved us. Romans 5 verse 5 says, God's love was poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So here's the bad news. You need to know this. On your own, you are powerless to live 1 Corinthians 13. It's just not possible. You're completely inadequate for this task. But God has loved you. And if you put your trust in Jesus to forgive your sins, God pours his love into your hearts by the power of his Holy Spirit so that you can begin to love others as he's first loved you. We can love because God has first loved us. So I, I know this is a tough passage and this is a tough thing and I just want to close with, with just two encouragements for you. If you find that you're struggling to love, here's the takeaway. You need to do one thing first. You need to remember the way that God has loved you through Jesus Christ, his son. What have you been filling your heart and your soul and your life with this week? Come back to the cross. Come back in, in worship to the God who speaks to you through his word. I have loved you in such a way that there is therefore now no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. Come back to the cross and know the love of God who says, you know what you are now? I'll tell you, you are my child. 
You're my daughter. You are my son. I've loved you with the very love that I've given to my son, Jesus Christ. And worship him and praise him and thank him. Feast on his love for you. And the second thing that you need to do is this. You need to receive that love and you need to take a step of faith and obedience in response to it. See, in receiving God's love, we know that, that this love that we're reading about is an action. That means there'll be times in my life when my heart's not quite up to speed with what I'm being called to do yet. But I'm feasting on the love of Christ for me and, and now I'm going to take a bold and courageous step to take one step forward to obey him and to love someone else. To take an action of love for someone else. So let me encourage you, spend a little time this week. Receive the love of God for you, but then also plan how you might begin to act in love towards others. See, if we do this, God's power will will flow through us and make even the smallest act eternally constructive for good. Would you pray with me, Grace City? Father, we, we come to you and we come poor and needy. We lift up our hands and we cry out like the man that Jesus spoke about. He says, have mercy on me for I am a sinner. Lord, we acknowledge that, that we are full of selfishness and sin that, that corrupts everything good in our lives. And yet, Lord, we know that you have sent Jesus Christ to be our Savior. That he is powerfully at work through his Holy Spirit. That even now we are free in Christ. That we can be full of the power of the Spirit to begin to love one another as you have first loved us. Lord, would you help us? Would you cause us to put our faith in Jesus and to trust you and to take a step of obedience? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.